welcome to Marathon Swim Stories, where we explore the human side of the superhuman feats of endurance swimmers and those who support them. I'm marathon swimmer and coach, Shannon Keegan. Today, I had the distinct pleasure of chatting with Stephen Munitonis, Openwaterpedia, one of the many open water resources that Steve has created, lists him as a water polo player and open water swimmer. But a quick search on the Marathon Swimmers Federation Project Long Swims Database exposes a marathon swimming history on the International Pro Tour. In our conversation today, Steve walks us through his experience growing up swimming last in the fast lane behind national team and Olympic pool swimmers before discovering his talent for the open water that landed him on the international stage representing the United States of America for long-distance marathon swimming, only to come home and find out that open water swimming does not get coverage in traditional swimming periodicals. This was the late 70s, you guys. There was no internet. Fortunately, Steve is not afraid to put his pen to paper and reach out to, well, anyone. First and foremost, his Swimming World magazine. Over time, he creates a compendium of open water swim knowledge by writing letters to people he meets on the international swim circuit, cataloging open water swim events, best practices, you name it. Steve humbly states that he prefers to highlight your achievements rather than discuss his own but his story is one that you don't want to miss. Enjoy. All right, so I always open it up really broadly. I usually just say, hey, Steve, what's your story? (laughs) My story is one of adventure and interest. Um, uh, When I was a little kid, and uh, the young young people don't know this, but uh, people my age and like people like Chris understand this is uh, we actually read encyclopedias. Um, and I always remember <laughs> going over my um, grandfather's house and on opening up his big set of beautiful encyclopedias. And I literally started at the letter A and every time I'd go over, I'd, I'd read some more. And it really opened me up at a very young age to the wonders of, of the world and the universe. And I used to read about, you know, everything from, I don't know, Mozambique to Manhattan. And I was a kid in Southern California and uh, this world of the, the written world of uh, encyclopedia really opened my eyes. So I wanted to go out and I had to figure out a way, how is it gonna travel around the world? Living in Southern California, my parents took me at a very young age to Santa Monica Beach. Um, and that's where I learned how to swim. And as I proceeded, I, uh, was very fortunate to be in teams where, um, uh, there were a lot of Olympic swimmers and very talented swimmers. Um, I was always in lane one, but at the end of the group. (laughs) So, um, I knew where all these Olympians were when I was a, a teenager and they would travel to Europe and they would travel to Asia and they would travel to South America. And I thought, God, that'd be so cool. They get to go to all these places for free and they get to wear these nice USA uniforms and stuff. And, 
I was not that fast. So I wouldn't, I wasn't able to uh, compete in the pool, but I figured out a way that, Hey, there's open water. And that was in the seventies uh, with Lynn Cox and Penny Dean and John York and others. They were, they were really opening up my eyes to what was possible and how a swimmer um, could travel the world uh, through the means of open water swimming. And so that was uh, my impetus on how I got into this uh, world of open water swimming. When did you start? Um, so did, when did you start competing in open water? Did you jump right into marathons uh, or did you do other stuff first? Oh yeah. In Southern California in the 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s, there was uh, throughout the um, uh, summer months, there was always around the pier swim, pier to pier swim every, every, every weekend. Um, so I went from San Diego all the way up to Santa Barbara, um, uh, Orange County, LA County, there were there were so many. Um, I would say half mile to three mile swims, um, and and I did them all. There was there wasn't a, a swim that I I didn't do. Um, I enjoyed it. Um, as I got older into my teens, I, I ventured up into uh, Northern California, and and um, so that was my introduction. And and we were very fortunate when I was a, a kid to have. It was called the Seal Beach uh, Swim. And Seal Beach Swim was often a, uh, the place where the USA Swimming in its early years, early uh, um, entry into the open water swim world, that's where they had their national championships. And it was a swim between uh, the Huntington Beach Pier and the Seal Beach Pier. They called it a 10-mile swim. It was probably more like an eight, maybe an eight-and-a-half-mile <laughs> swim. But... Um, that's where all the locals, um, I swam, um, at Lakewood Aquatic Club and, and a beach swim club. And that's where all of the swimmers, you, many of the swimmers you hear about, um, started. And, and, you know, we just, we just did these swims because we knew it. If you were in lane one and you were a distance swimmer or an IM swimmer, or did any of the 200 butterflies to 200 backstrokers, you were in these uh, events. And, um, and that's what I did. And, and um, I was one year, I don't remember, 1980, 1978, um, 1978, I was 16 years old and I did um, my first 10 mile swim, really an eight mile swim, and I didn't finish. Uh, the water was too cold and, and I wasn't mentally uh, ready for that. And I, I ended up, up getting out voluntarily, swimming to shore, and then walking in my Speedos to the finish. And I, I call that my walk of shame. <laughs> I, um, I vowed oh, I will never do that again. Um, a few years later, they had uh, another national championship along that same course, um, and this one was the first year that USA Swimming would send a national team to an international competition. Oh. Um, so I was a little bit older. I think I was 18, um, uh, 18 or so, 19. And um, um, the, the carrot at the end of that race was a free trip to England uh, to <laughs> Lake Windermere. So. Yeah. Um, I was really, I trained very hard for that and, and I was fortunate to win. And uh, Penny Dean, who I had known before, 
but I had never known um, intimately, um, came up to me and explained to me what we were doing. Dale Petronich was there and a variety of the other USA swimming officials. And they said, you know, this is going to be um, the, you know, our first uh, attempt that we put a budget together, a small budget, but we're going to put you on the airplane. We're going to fly you to England. We're going to drive from London up to Lake uh, Windermere. Um, and you're going to represent the United States. And I was like, wow, for all those years, training behind um, the Olympians and the world record holders, NCAA champions, finally, I got to wear my own USA swimming uh, gear. So I thought that was the coolest thing. Yeah. Then this is the important part. And this is what brings us from 1978 to the current time. So I go over to England and I, I win the race and, and people who, you know, um, Alice, Allison Streeter was in the race. Uh, lots of people of that era were in that race. And I, I came back and at the time um, people didn't, uh, we, obviously the internet wasn't around and, and sort of the, the, the big publication, the monster publication is many people in my uh, uh age group know was Swimming World magazine. Yep. And again, I grew up with all the people who are on covers of Swimming World magazine and they have feature stories in, in um, Swimming World magazine. I said, God, here I just want a race for the United States. I was able to wear a USA thing. I'm gonna come back and I'm finally gonna be able to see my name in Swimming World magazine. I didn't care right. a one-liner. That was like right. my... I wouldn't say it was my goal. It was, it was the, the thing that I had looked forward to. Yeah. And I remember um, uh, Penny and I coming back. And, and then that month, um, like many swimmers, age group swimmers of that era, we, I got my Swimming World magazine. I opened it up. I knew I wasn't going to be on the cover. I opened it up and I went, I went flip through it. Nothing was there. I go, wait a second. This is an international competition. This is a championship. There was, there was people from all over the, the uh, world competing in this. And so I went page by page and I went page by page. And again, nothing was on. Uh, it was called the International uh, Long Distance Swimming Championships. Mm -hmm. Nothing was on uh, about. And I go, ah. now at the time, Swimming World Magazine was headquartered near LAX in, in Southern California. So... <laughs> as a person um, did in the 1970s and 80s, I wrote a letter. I literally hand wrote a letter to the editor um, of Swimming World magazine. And I, and I made a copy of the results. I put them in the letter and I sent it off. And the publisher um, gave me a call at my, at my parents' home, of course, no cell phones. And he said, oh, I didn't know about this race. And I, and then I said, yes. And I explained, he goes, oh, that sounds so interesting. We've never covered open water swimming. I didn't know this swimming, uh, this kind of event occurred. And I said, yes. I explained the qualification um, procedures, et cetera, et cetera. He goes, why don't you write a story on it? So I sit there and go, wait a second. I'm writing a story about an event that I participated in. So I wrote it in the third person. Because I didn't want to say Steve Minotonis won the event written by Steve Minotonis. <laughs> right, right. Strange. So I wrote it in the third person. And then he did publish it. Um, I don't I think it was a one or two months later. And then uh, he said, 
then I wrote back and said, that was pretty fun. I'd never written anything like that before. And I said, and there's a lot of other great things that are happening in, around the world. And he says, good, why don't you write about them? And so back in the uh, 70s and 80s, I would literally write out a letter. I put it in the snail mail, send it over to um, whomever, um, and gradually begin every single year. I did that every single month. I did that with people from around the world, um, people that I initially met at um, in Lake Windermere, um, the Dutch, the British, um, the Czechoslovakians, uh, the, the uh, well, at that time, Yugoslavians, the, the, the uh, Germans, um, et cetera. And, I, and they'd answer me one or two months later with a handwritten letter. And that's how I began the correspondence of, of uh, swimmers and, and race directors around the world. And in our sport, as you know, once you become a swimmer, you never really leave the sport. Right. Uh, many of the swimmers then, um, as they retired, they uh, you know became escort pilots. They became race organizers. They became coaches. And so this this little network that basically began with Penny Dean and, and Dale Petronich and then expanded to that community that gathered in Lake Windermere, then became a global community. And I remember in, uh, I think it was the late 80s, I had, uh, again, kids nowadays don't know this, I had graph paper. And on that graph paper, every time I'd learn of a new race, I'd write it down. And in the 1980s, I remember my, my quote, global list of open water swims had about 190 events on it total, wow. 190 total. I mean, of course, it, it included everything from the Lake Windermere swims, some of the swims in the uh, Serpentine and, and uh, various places in the Mediterranean, but it also included, for example, um, the Manhattan Island Marathon swim, um, uh, which was, you know, in its very beginnings and included the Waikiki rough water swims and, and a handful of swims in Asia. And that was it. Um, and now I look, you know, now looking at the year 2021, you know, that number certainly exceeds 30, 35,000 events. It's certainly uh, the numbers, you know, there's no way this small community of people who used to communicate literally by snail mail. <laughs> I have handwritten letters from people, you know, saying, you know, welcome, you know, when the next time you come to, you know, Austria, please visit. Um, and, and so technology, awareness. Um, and, you know, I think uh, it is the, the longevity of open water swimmers that has allowed this sport to continue. Um, I see Chris Rutford here. I mean, you know, I don't know when he began his first Manhattan Island Marathon swim, but he's still with us. If yeah. we consider all of the, the competitive swimmers who started out, let's say as a 14, 16 or 18 year old, you know, some of them are into uh, master swimming, but most of them have moved on to life. Yeah. It seems that the open water swimming world, we sort of all hang on and we, we grow back. as the sport expands literally exponentially. Yeah. Long answer to a short question. No, it was perfect. I was, I was going to ask about, about Wowza and how it came to be. So you totally nailed that one. Thank you. <laughs> ah, well, Wowza 
Wowza has another interesting story. Okay, so, before, before I want to hear Wowza oh, too, but uh, no. Um, so the first letter you wrote, uh-huh. what? How old were you? Twenty. Uh, I was nineteen. So you're nineteen when you came back from Windermere. Okay, yeah. and, and that and this just started the global correspondence of and cataloging of open water swimming. Okay, sure. and then Wowza, take us away. Yeah. <laughs> so in two thousand, so 1984 was the first time I had personally heard of a concerted effort to um, get marathon swimming into the Olympics. Uh, before there were, even when I went to, to England and before that people would talk about just a passing comment. Oh, it, it would be cool to have marathon swimming in the Olympics. Again, they were just passing comments, but um, through Penny Dean and Dale Petronich and others, they really put a concerted effort into um, having uh, marathon swimming in the Olympics. And in 1984, they organized a um, Catalina Channel Crossing. Um, Countries, um, not so many countries, I think seven or eight countries maybe, participated in a Catalina Channel Crossing. Um, And the IOC members, uh, FINA members, were actually at the finish that was held at uh, um, Cabrillo Beach. Uh, Cabrillo Beach, for those of you who understand um, the Catalina Channel, is, gosh, it's probably three or four miles longer than the shortest distance uh, between Catalina and the Southern California mainland. But Cabrillo Beach allowed the officials to actually see these swimmers come into shore. Mm-hmm. And in 1980, so from 1984, there was support on the IOC and FINA side to introduce open water swimming into the Olympics. Now it took many, uh, many people, many creative people, many passionate people um, to continue to lobby their own uh, national governing bodies and then therefore uh, the IOC mm-hmm. to put uh, open water swimming in the Olympics. But finally that column uh, culminated in 2005, yeah. October or November, I forgot when, in 2005, the Olympics, the IOC agreed in first pass to add a 10K marathon swim into the Olympics. So that was great. So we had to prepare that information and give it to the IOC. They, they passed it on first vote and marathon swimming was in the Olympics in 2005, except nobody knew what the, um, uh, the definitions were. Certainly nobody knew who the best swimmers were, mm-hmm. um, the qualification um, standards, et cetera, were all this unknown. Um, and, and, you know, I was aware of this. So I had all this correspondence from all these people around the world and I had always followed the open water swimming around the world. So I sort of knew who were the better swimmers. Um, so I used, so same thing, like I did with the swimming world, uh, editor and publisher writing a letter. I started to write stuff like these are the swimmers to watch. These uh, are the strategies involved. This is what a feeding station is. This is what a um, pontoon is. Um, this is what a feeding stick is. This is how you make a feeding stick. Um, this is uh, drafting. This is um, positioning. This is um, uh, even the definition of, of a foul um, 
uh, or you know, a foul in, in open water swimming, what is impeding, what is unsportsmanlike conduct, all of this information had to be uh, formalized and put in the public um, sector so people could appreciate the sport like we appreciated the sport. And so we had to create the information and the heroes behind it. One thing led to another. Um, I wrote NBC and said, hey, you guys are going to televise this sport. You know, you should consider camera angles and all these different things. And lo and behold, I got a response back from NBC saying, hey, if you know so much about this sport, why don't you help us commentate? I said, great, <laughs> I'm there. Perfect. So um, and Wowza was created because, again, it was just me. I needed some kind of structure to appear official. I wasn't <laughs> representative of FINA. I wasn't a representative of USA Swimming. I was just trying to create some kind of official structure. So NBC and IOC would allow me and others to share who are the heroes and what do they do and how do they train and what do they eat? So the Olympic audience could appreciate what these great athletes did in a 10 K swim in a rowing basin in Beijing. Yeah. That yeah. was the beginning. Yeah. Okay. But before Wowza, it was like open water source or something like you were yes. dabbling and some stuff yeah. like to get the message out there. That's, that's fantastic. Yes. Um, I was going to close it with thank you for everything, everything you've done for open water swimming, but we'll just stip that in now. I'm sure I'll say it again. <laughs> Let's get back to your, um, your, your own, your own swimming career though. Cause you did some amazing swimming yourself. Um, what, and so you said you kind of pushed distance because you weren't as fast as the other guys in lane one, but you wanted to travel internationally. So what happened after Windermere? So after Windermere, I, I, um, I realized, um, uh, I think it was 1978. It was a swim in Chicago where uh, Olympic champion John Kinsella um, competed um, in a race. Oh, gosh, it was called the Pepsi Challenge or something like that. It, it was actually 1978. I think they had like either a 25 or $30,000 prize. It was, it was quite large if you consider it. Uh, the value of, of that much money in 1978. I, again, I forgot the exact the number, but um, that exposed me to the um, professional marathon swimming circuit. Um, and so um, in college, I swam and played water polo. So I had to figure out a way how I could retain my NCAA eligibility and also compete uh, on the uh, professional circuit. Um, uh, without going into too many details, I figured out a way. Um, and and uh, so this exposed me to races. At the time I knew about, let's say the Capri Napoli swim in Italy. I knew about the Argentinian swims in, um, uh, you know, in South America. I knew about the Egyptian races, but the races that were, were closest to me and, and easy for me to get to were the Canadian uh, lake races. So um, I went from, you know, Windermere to the professional circuit. Um, again, I was able to meet more people from around the world, get more information from them. And um, those were fun. Um, I subsequently got a, a job in Japan. And in Japan, um, one of the things I wanted to do, because I had not seen a Japanese 
um, or many Asians, to be honest, in these professional, uh, in the professional circuit or in the international races like in Windermere. And so I, I went there and I, I figured out um, five different swims um, that I was able to do. Um, again, this is in the 80s. So um, if you think about it economically, um, Japan had a lot of money at the time. I was able to find very nice sponsorship and I was able to do a series of five uh, swims throughout Japan. They were all very, very interesting. Um, they were all um, uh, public or uh, televised um, on prime time in Japan. So, um, you know, I was always that theme of, you know, adventure and trying to do something um, that suited my aquatic talents as opposed to swimming a very fast 200 butterfly. Um, I just, you know, created for myself. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so, cause you were, you were at Harvard, right? So that's why yeah. I could, the Canadian lakes and stuff were, yes. um, were closer. Um, what was, what's your favorite memory from that period of the open water, you know, the pro circuit and things like that? Um, I think my favorite memory was, um, and it usually, this is usually it is, isn't the finish of the race races. It was actually the start of the races. It was really cool for me to um, be sitting there at the start of the race. Everybody's, you know, you know, even if they pretend they're not nervous, there is this sense of heightened awareness. There is this sense of not only are you aware of somebody else who's going to swim across uh, Lake St. John or Lake Memphis or around Manhattan Island, but there is this also sense of camaraderie. So I remember when I swam around, uh, Manhattan Island. Um, Paul Asmus was there. Shelley Taylor Smith was there and others were there. And we were all sort of looking at each other. We all at the time, um, you know, I remember swimming and we would feed every hour to two hours. Oh, wow. That was it. Um, and often the first three hours, we wouldn't feed at all. Wow. So um, if you imagine, you know, you, 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 you sleep, um, somewhat uh, restlessly, uh, you'd wake up, you might have a little bit of bite to eat. And then you swim the first three hours hard without eating or drinking. And then you only drink uh, around Manhattan Island. I think I probably drank um, something five times. Okay. Um, that's it. And was probably this much. And so I'm um, getting out. Uh, we were all very dehydrated. Um, I remember doing a swim in Cabo San Lucas um, with Philip Rush was there, Claudio Plitt was there, Paul Asmuth was there, and um, the water was very warm. Uh, it was 30 degrees Celsius, so 80, you know, 86, 87 degrees. And when I was racing against Claudio, he and I were, were roughly the same speed. We were looking at each other, and um, I told my boat, he told his boat, don't stop unless he stops. And so we're, we're racing with under a cloudless sky. I don't remember the temperature. The water was, you know, 86, 87 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and he and I are literally just melting, but we're so stubborn that we're refusing to stop even an inch. And we were just going back and forth and back forth. And I remember thinking my, my mouth was so dry. And I think about it now, it's like, how stupid, 
I just just stop and grab something. That would have been so much better. But at the time it was sort of mano a mano. You know, I'm going to out macho you instead of outsmart you. So mm-hmm. the start of the race was really cool because you saw how people were preparing. Did they stretch? How much land lint, if any, did they put on? Um, I remember Philip Rush um, when the water was cold. Um, he would get in without a cap. And it completely blew my mind. I said, <laughs> How in the world is this guy going to swim, you know, six, seven, eight, 12 hours without a swim cap? And that kind of stuff was, you know, sort of a gamemanship of the people to start. So the starts were always really, really interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. I just read about some of them, I guess, in Paul Asma's book. Um, and it sounded like that was always just quite intense part of the whole thing. (laughs) No favorite memories though. Anything you're anyone you're especially proud of What swim are you especially proud of? Oh, I mean the, the swim that I did in, um, in, in Northern Japan, my solo swim, that was, that was very cool. Um, it was cool because, um, uh, there was an intense negotiation between myself and my escort boat and the Japanese Coast Guard. Um, uh, I had known uh, the Japanese Coast Guard um, and the, the, the head guy of Japanese Coast Guard, and nobody had ever swum this particular course before. David Udevin had, had done the um, Suguru Channel, um, I think 10 days before I did. Um, but he, he started at a different point and I started at a, at a particular point. It was rather rocky, et cetera, but I wanted to start there, uh, for various reasons. And there was a negotiation with the, um, Japanese coast guard that, um, I had to, I had to make it halfway across the channel in three hours, or I would be pulled. Um, and what happened is I got to the, uh, uh, race and and many people don't know that there's a, a tunnel underneath the uh, Tsugaru Channel. Oh wow! Uh, a, a railway, uh, and I had many meetings with the engineers who actually created that tunnel, and they had, had about thirty years of tidal information, and, and it was fascinating to me to meet with these guys and figure out and we figure out a way how to do it. But the first about kilometer the 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 rules were I had to swim by myself so um and and we started at night uh, or it was getting dark and I saw my boats out there um and I had to swim so that that first three hours um getting across or the first kilometer was scary um and the first three hours I was quite nervous but when I got to the midway point in three hours. Um, and they signaled to me like, okay, you can continue the rest of the way. Um, that was, uh, I was very happy at that point. Cause that was a, it was a battle bureaucratically, uh, navigationally, operationally, um, in a foreign country. Um, so that was, uh, that was, that was a really enjoyable experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did it feel finishing that swim? How do you describe that feeling? Uh, it was great. I mean, um, it was televised. Um, and so, you know, um, it's one thing to finish a race. Um, it's one thing to finish a channel and I've been on many, um, channel crossings, you know, as a paddler or support crew, et cetera. Um, this was really cool in Japan. I always had a 
television camera and crew on shore waiting for me to, you know, hand up, hand me a mic. And so the swims in Japan were, they were things that I created um, and they, they had things that I wanted to have done, mm. you know, again, as a kid who didn't get um, the accolades that my teammates did. And I saw my like, God, it'd be really cool to get interviewed. Um, I thought, wow, I want to do these races where I'm interviewed. Um, and so it's really satisfying for at the end of the race, a TV camera, uh, uh, you know, person would come up to me and stick a mic in my hand uh, or face and say, Hey, how was it? And, um, throughout the swims, I'd always be thinking, I have to think of something very clever, very <laughs> profound to state at the end of these races. And, uh, I was never able to do that, but it was still fun otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, that's great that you were able to create that, that atmosphere at the end for you. I think it was Catherine Breed mentioned in my interview with her, how, you know, it's like, she'd gone from, you know, college swimming to like doing Lake Tahoe, finishing, setting the record and there's like crickets, you know, <laughs> it's quite a different, um, finish <laughs> in a solo marathon swim. How was that transition though? Did you enjoy the transition from like racing to solo? Um, I prefer racing. Um, it makes the swim easier (laughs) Uh, and it it really pushes you um you know uh, i I mentioned earlier about racing against claudio plitt um uh, or i remember racing against uh, paul asmuth uh down the hudson um and um you just do things in a race that you wouldn't necessarily do in a solo swim so i remember uh paul and i were swimming i mean i could touch the the uh, seawalls around Manhattan Island. I mean, to be honest, I think that's sort of dangerous. But <laughs> in a race, we were, you know, he was there. He saw me, obviously. And so we were together and we would just push the envelope. In the solo swims, um, I didn't have to push the envelope. And because the solo swims I did were always swims uh, or courses that nobody else had done, there was always an element of risk. Um, significant risk. Um, I did a swim in um, Okinawa where there's many sharks and I had, uh, I had four boats around me and what they call shark divers. Um, And that was really cool. I'd always wanted to swim with sharks. Um, And I was able to find a place where there are plenty of sharks and I could see the sharks. Um, Fortunately, none of them or all of them ignored me. (laughs) So, so racing and solo swimming we're just two different parts of this equation of open water swimming that I had wanted to create for myself. And um, racing was fun. Uh, it challenged me in different ways, but open water uh, solo swims challenged me in other ways. How do I, how do I literally create an event out of, out of nothing? How do I um, create a course that's never been done before and, and do it safely? Um, mm-hmm. What are the, what are the issues with um, what happens when I fail? I mean, I was asking these sponsors to provide a lot of money. And I was always thinking like, I, I, there's no uh, option for failure because once I fail, I won't get, be able to get another sponsor. So right. there was a lot that I liked um, about um, solo swims, especially a, a pioneering swim that, that I thought was um, intellectually uh, uh, interesting. Yeah. And that probably helped contribute to your book as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, and 
the reason why you said you didn't hear many um, interviews about me is because I find all of you more interesting than me. Um, I like to say that too, but, <laughs> but we still I mean, like to hear really, about um, I like doing things um, in my own life and challenging, but um, I get my inspiration from following the exploits of, of everybody. I mean, I remember when I was young and uh, Doc Councilman did the um, uh, English Channel at the age of 58, 56 or 58. I don't remember exactly when. And at the time, that was considered so old. You know, you're in your 50s and you're doing a channel swim. I mean, now it's like, you know, if you're in your 40s, you're not even, you know. You're, not, yeah, yeah. you're too young. Um, <laughs> but, you know, back then, you know, even if you were old in my book, it was just so inspirational. And I, I love surrounding myself by these inspirational people and always inspirational people, their universe or their network also has other inspirational people. So it doesn't matter whether I'm in Tel Aviv or Tokyo, uh, you know, uh, Milwaukee or Monterey, I'm always um, uh, interested in not only what the swimmers do in the water, but how actually they, they prepare. So one of the things that, that was always interest to me again, between 2005 and 2008, how did these, Olympic athletes prepare for their swim? Did what kind of dry land training did they do? What kind of visualization did they do? What, what was their nutritional plan? Um, uh, what, you know, what is the optimal time to drink or eat something in a race versus a channel swim versus a solo swim? And all of this stuff um, was just the collective global experimentation on what is optimal. Right. And learning from everybody was, is just fascinating to me. Yeah. 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 I agree. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it my, myself. And you've, you've been very helpful to me. I don't know if you remember talking to me a couple of years ago about, um, I, I don't, one of the comments you made was, um, you know, like how to, like how a person can't possibly swim, like a person like Sarah Thomas, who goes out and does, you know, 80, 100 miles, like she can't swim 80 or 100 miles to train for that. And so you have to, you know, do the best you can. And then you go out there the day of the event. And that's been um, a big uh, kind of mantra of mine. And I've tested it in various ways. <laughs> but um, getting back to you, um, what what motivates you to keep going? Oh, I, again, this sense of adventure, this sense of uh, pushing one's envelope. Um, one of the things that, that I find fascinating, certainly in the last 10 years, is ice swimming. Again, um, Lynn Cox lives in the, like, just a few miles down the road from <laughs> me. And she really opened up everybody's eyes as to what is possible with their Bering Strait swim, with their swims in Antarctica, about swimming in water under 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And at the time, it was so mind boggling. But now we have hundreds of people around the world doing ice miles and ice swimming. And, and, you know, you look in medical journals, and it says, you know, if you're in water at 38 degrees, you know, you have 20 minutes to live or what, whatever the, the documentation um, says, but humans are now pushing that envelope further and further people like Sarah Thomas is, you know, no way, you know, I knew Phil Brush, and I've known Phil Brush since he was a, a teenager. Um, you know, when he did his 28 hour, you know, three way crossing the channel, that was like mind boggling. And now Sarah's put it to four 
with the possibility of going, you know, a five way. And so it, allowing the human mind to um, imagine what is possible makes the physical possible. Mm-hmm. And I think when, when that's why I liked racing so much, I said, God, how can Paul Asmuth swim so fast? How can John Kinsella swim so fast? Well, they swim so fast because they doing that in their daily workout. Mm-hmm. What are they, how do they, how do they prepare themselves for every single workout and learning what drives them daily helps me or motivates me to do whatever I would like to do to do. So learning all these things behind the scenes, like, you know, um, is, is really a a driving force for me. And I'm always learning from ice swimmers. I mean, now, you know, um, Otto uh, Thanning, the uh, South African cardiologist, you know, he's now in his mid seventies and he's still thinking about an, an English channel swim. So before, when I was growing up, Doc Councilman was 56, 58 years old, blowing everybody's mind because an old man can swim across the English channel. And now someone approaching the age of 80 is, has a legitimate reasonable shot of swimming the English channel. That's just uh, unbelievable. Yeah. 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 It's fantastic. I love it. Like you were saying, and I think that's a big kind of just, well, not, we won't say distinguishing factor, but open water swimmers. I just love the longevity of it. Like, it's just amazing to see people coming back again and again and again, again, we just can't stay away from the open water. Um, tell us about, tell us about 2016. Tell us about the heart attack. Ah, okay. So, um, I was doing, I, my company, uh, Katz, we were in the early stages of our product development and I had um, visited um, Japan um, three times in 11 days, flying economy class. And um, it was basically, I, I, I worked 11 days straight with very little sleep, extreme sleep. I, I, you know, I flew from LAX to Tokyo, I'd work and come back and we were really trying to figure out how to make this machine. Um, and I just, I just pushed my body way, way too um, hard. What I did is uh, on the last flight, I knew my body was hurting and my body just ached all over the place. And um, in the airplane, my peripheral vision started to narrow significantly. I mean, I literally, I couldn't see the sides. I had to turn my head to look and everything hurt, um, just fatigue. And I got off the airplane and my wife picked me up and uh, she says, Oh, you look really tired. I said, I'm I'm exhausted. So I, we went home Um, that next morning, I missed morning workout. Like I never miss morning workout. Um, you know, in, in, in whatever, 40 some odd years of, of having, being able to swim in the morning, I've probably missed fewer than, you know, 10 times total for anything, sickness, whatever. Um, and that morning I missed, my wife thought that was rather unusual, even though she knew I was tired, but she, you know, she, she let me sleep. I came downstairs um, and I just hit the floor. Um, what happened was I had a rupture or I had a, um, my, artery um, became inflamed and it just uh, closed up. So it was very similar to if you have a lot of plaque, the artery closed up, um, my heart stopped. 
my, at the time, 17 year old son uh, started to give me CPR um, and, um, uh, you know, ambulance came, they took me to the um, hospital. Um, at the time, on that particular day, my cardiolog cardiologist told me later that I was the fourth man in their mid 50s who had come in within an hour's time. Wow. Three of them didn't make it, unfortunately. And for whatever reason, I did. And um, they put a stent in my um, uh, artery. Um, I, they put me in, they call it the Arctic Sun Protocol, which they, they um, make the, the, they freeze the body, basically. They, they freeze the body in order to um, stop any uh, further damage uh, to the heart. They, they cooled me down for, for three days and then they, slowly, um, uh, warm me up. And, uh, it was, um, it was the eighth day, um, that I, I woke up. So by the time I hit the floor to when I woke up, uh, a week had passed. And when I woke up, I was in the hospital and I saw my mother and my wife at the bed. And I, I opened my eyes and I realized that I was in a hospital. My first thought was, um, Oh my God, I hope it's not my dad. And because I saw my mom and my wife in the hospital and I knew it was a hospital room, but I couldn't imagine it. I was the patient. So my immediate thought was, oh, my dad, what happened to him? Uh, and then my second thought was, I have to go to the bathroom. Um, so I started to get up and my wife and my mother like told me, like, don't move. And then I said, I, I need to go to the bathroom as clear as day. I need to go to the bathroom. They said, no, you can't. You had a heart attack. And I, it didn't register. And, and then I, you know, I, I was going to get up and, and I realized it had all these tubes in my arm and in my nose and everywhere. And I said, that's really strange. And, and then uh, the nurse comes in and um, uh, again, I, I, it was really confused. And the nurse came in and she, she said, uh, oh, we just called the doctor because the doctor had just told my wife, um, you know, whatever, eight days previously, that um, I would have severe neurological damage if I did live. Mm -hmm. um, he said, I was lucky that they were able to get the, the stent in in time, but uh, because I had spent so much time uh, without breathing naturally, that it was probably severe neurological damage. And then, you know, she would, she should expect me to not be normal. Um, and so um, when I did wake up and I, you know, I was talking normally, uh, obviously everybody was pretty happy and surprised. And, and so was I in both cases, I was both happy and surprised. And then um then I woke up and Dr. Kane explained to me what happened. And then I was actually very pissed off at myself. Um, and I said, yeah, this is, I, you know, I got a second chance. So, um, you know, I need to make a vow. Then I need to make every single day um, worth it um, and make up for any lost time. So um, that's what I've been trying to do ever since. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How have you made any changes? <laughs> To your uh, life. <laughs> well, you know, one the thing that the cardiologist, uh, I, I visited uh, Stanford, I visited Harvard, I visited um, Cedars-Sinai here in uh, Los Angeles, and I had to figure out why I had this heart attack. Mm 
Um, and in the conclusion, after all these learned heart doctors uh, talked to me was basically a lack of sleep. Um, and a lack of sleep is this sort of uh, low grade stress and stress creates inflammation in the same way that, 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 you know, plaque creates stress. And so that artery was just closing up largely because of stress. And they, the biggest change in my life was um, sleeping more. Um, I still can't sleep for long periods, but, you know, uh, I figured out a way that um, I could take a nap, um, even if it's five, five minute nap in the middle of the day, um, that would help. Interesting enough, again, because I've been swimming all my life, um, I'm actually swimming significantly faster now than I was in my late 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, I think because A, I'm, I'm sleeping a little bit more, um, but also I'm just happy to be alive. So um, at, and it, it turned out okay. Tell us about your recovery though. You used your, the product. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to so, tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So before I had made this product, um, I'd spent uh, 10 years working with cardiologists in Japan about this thing called Katsu. And um, uh, we actually studied 7,000 uh, cardiac rehab patients um, in a hospital setting uh, doing this, uh, this technology. And it was all done in a hospital um, under the care of cardiologists and exercise physiologists and internists. And, you know, we did blood tests and MRI and ultrasound, and we had all the best equipment available. And then here, here I come, you know, six years, seven years later and had my own heart attack. And so I told the doctors, I said, I'd like to experiment on myself. Um, again, this sense of adventure. <laughs> and, um, they said, well, you know, you should talk to your cardiologist about it. So I did. And he said, no, no, you can't do that. That's dangerous. Um, and I said, well, I don't think so. So I basically just self-experimented on myself. And um, I, you know, spoke with a lot of uh, physicians, a lot of vascular surgeons, et cetera, and figured out, hey, this is actually uh, pretty cool. So um, since that time, uh, I think we've sort of pushed the envelope of what is possible with uh, someone undergoing cardiac rehabilitation. That's really cool. Are there benefits for the average swimmer from oh, the Katsu product? Yeah. Absolutely. So um, we, we did a test with um, special operators. So special operators are like your Navy SEALs, your Army Rangers, um, special forces. And uh, those um, men are, are in extreme shape. Um, you know, they train all day long, they're strong, they have very good stamina. And uh, I was able to convince them to um, do a three week test, where these guys don't train so hard, all they do is walk comfortably with the katsu bands on. And they did for three weeks. Um, and it was my contention based on my own experimentation that when you increase the elasticity of your capillaries and veins, you actually enable the body to become more uh, stronger vascularly, which in the case of a swimmer, rower, runner, et cetera, means that you have a greater probability of going at a faster pace for a longer period of time. That was my thesis. That's what I'd seen in myself. And that's what I had 
um, told our, our military services and, and they proved it to be the case. So these guys uh, walk for three weeks with these vans on uh, 20 minutes a day, four days a week. And at the end of that three week period, again, these are all people in their twenties, extremely fit. Not only did they increase their uh, maximum uh, VO two max, they also increased their mile and a half runtime. And so um, when you can increase the elasticity of your capillaries and veins, it does a variety of very profound things in your body. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really cool. (laughs) I'm intrigued. Um, so you're still, you're still, you're back to swimming. You, that was part of your recovery, right? Getting yes. Back to swimming. That was, that was the extent of my, um, recovery. Um, I had went, I, I, the hospital that I was at Hogue hospital in Newport beach, um, they had your typical, um, cardiac rehab stuff. So treadmill, uh, elliptical bike, etc. And I was telling the nurse and complained to cardiologist. I said, you don't understand. I'm getting out of shape doing your cardiac rehab. And I, I, and I, you know, showed them data from myself, I would, I would, you know, do my own. And I said, look at this is my, my heart rate, my respiratory rate, I, I would explain to them that your um, means of pe- getting people back into shape is based on the premise that people are not in shape. Right. So when you have a cardiac rehab patient who already is in shape, how do you, how do you help them? And that's, that's what I was exploring. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so again, I always just like, I'm just curious about many things. So yeah, Yeah. that's my, that's my thesis about, (laughs) or my hypothesis about marathon swimmers. A lot of people are like, oh, I'm crazy. Or I did this crazy thing. And I'm like, no, we're not. We're just curious. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing your story today, Stephen. I did want to save um, a couple minutes at the end. I like to do this little breakout rooms. If you're willing to stick around for your last five minutes and talk to whomever you end up in a breakout room with. Um, Thank you also for everything that you do for open water swimming. It's just amazing, but be sure you get some sleep. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. More than just a podcast, did you know that you can watch Marathon Swim Stories on YouTube? Or join us. We meet on Tuesdays at 5.30 a.m. Pacific, 8.30 a.m. Eastern, 13.30 GMT. Check out intrepidwater.com forward slash Marathon Swim Stories to see who's up next. Thank you for listening.